Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, grab a Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18, in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you can find that on page 12. And while you're finding your place, have you ever messed up in front of someone really important or uh, done something embarrassing in front of someone that you really wanted to impress? It's like the worst. And I'm not going to give you any personal stories that I have, but it's just about the worst, right? You, you replay it over and over again in your head. Why did I say that? Why did I do that? Boy, I wish I could have that over again. We're going to read a story uh, that must be a, a lot like that this morning as the Lord affirms his covenant promise to Sarah, who does not receive it gracefully, uh, as we are reminded that nothing is too hard for the Lord. And so we're in Genesis chapter 18, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 1. It says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant." So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And so last week, the Lord confirmed his covenant with Abram, he changed his name to Abraham, and he instituted the covenant sign of circumcision. And now as we pick up again here in chapter 18, we move forward in the story uh, to what appears to be a short time later, a few weeks, or perhaps even a couple of months, and the Lord appears to Abraham again by his tent at the Oaks of Mamre, which you may remember is where Abraham has been living since the end of chapter 13. It's the hottest time of the day, and so uh, people would take a break from working outside and sit inside their shelter in order to to rest from the heat. They would take a a siesta. And it occurred to me this week that what we probably think of as a tent is almost certainly not the same thing that Abraham lived in. And so I've got a picture that we're going to put up on the screen. And so this is a picture of a modern tent that is used by the Bedouin people who live in the same areas of, of the Middle East Uh, where Abraham lived. And you can see it's pretty large, and it has a a thick, dark cloth covering that absorbs a lot of the sun's heat and allows the inside of the tent to be much cooler than the outside temperature. And on the one hand, it has been thousands of years since Abraham lived. 
but the lifestyle of these particular people has remained largely unchanged over time. And so it's safe to say that, that Abraham's living arrangement would have been very similar, if not exactly the same, uh, as this. But at any rate, Abraham is sitting in the opening of his tent, and at one point he looks up and he sees three men standing there in front of him. And in the ancient world, and even still today in many parts of the Middle East, hospitality is considered uh, highly virtuous. And so as people travel, they're exposed to the elements, and they usually don't have very many resources, and so it was dangerous. And so it was expected that you would open your home to strangers, provide for their needs, and then send them on along their way. And true to this custom, uh, when Abraham sees these men, he gets up and, and he runs to them, and he bows down and invites him Uh, pleads with them, really, to stop and stay a while. Uh, He offers them water to wash their feet and food to uh, refresh themselves, the opportunity to cool off under the shade of his trees, and they agree. Now, we know, because the text makes it clear, that these are not just ordinary men, but there are reasons to believe that Abraham recognizes this also. Uh, For one, there is the, the flurry of activity, Right? Abraham runs to meet them, and then he rushes into the tent to tell Sarah to get some bread ready. Then he runs and selects a calf to be butchered for meat, and then he, he collects uh, cheese, curds, and milk uh, and, and takes it to them, and then he stands by these men as their personal waiter. Now, now keep in mind that Abraham is 99 years old at this point to be doing all of this running and rushing. And he has literally hundreds of people in his household who serve and work for him. And yet, he is taking all this responsibility on himself, which indicates that he recognizes something of the significance and importance of these guests. Secondly, he goes over the top. Right? He offers them a morsel of bread, and then what he does is he pulls out the all-you-can-eat buffet. We've already seen that he butchers an entire calf, And he brings cheese and milk. But when he tells Sarah to get three sias of fine flour, that's an amount that that would uh, translate to right around 21 dry liters, which would come out to be just under 25 pounds of flour. And you don't have to be a baker to understand that that's going to make a lot of bread. This is, is, in terms of ancient hospitality, Abraham has, has pulled out all of the stops. This is a meal fit for a king. Now, having said all that, the fact that we know that these aren't ordinary men doesn't mean that we know who they are. Uh, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that it's, it's difficult to know who the angel of the Lord is. Is it just an angel, or is this a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus? Is it something else? And the same thing is true here, right? The Lord appears, but what Abraham sees is three men. And if you pay attention as we read, the text continues to alternate between singulars and plurals, right? The Lord singular appears, but Abraham sees men plural. Abraham addresses the Lord singular and then refers to yourselves plural. And it doesn't come across in English, but but Abraham wants to find favor in your singular sight and then offers water to wash your plural feet, and so on. And so this raises the question, who are these three men who seem to be united with one another and yet distinct? Is this a a visible expression of the triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
Uh, is it a, a visible expression of God with two angels? Is it three angels who are, who are appearing and speaking on behalf of God? And different people advocate for all three of these positions. As we said a couple of weeks ago, as interesting as it is to think about, there's probably no way to know for certain, although I do think in this case that it's a, a visible expression of God with two angels, uh, but no matter what it is, what is clear is that this is a divine visitation of some kind, and Abraham is responding accordingly. But while the Lord is speaking to Abraham, the real purpose of this visit has to do with Sarah, and we're going to see that as we pick up again beginning in verse 9. It says, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out, and my Lord is old, Shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. And so the men have been enjoying this meal that Abraham has prepared for them. And as we pick up in verse 9, they ask Abraham at one point, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, it's possible, after Abraham tells them that that she is inside the tent, that they've already been talking about Sarah at some point in this conversation. But the text doesn't give us that information. And so I believe we are supposed to understand this as a demonstration of supernatural knowledge. And culturally, it would have been seen as inappropriate for a woman uh, to be in the presence of or to speak to a group of strange men. And so Sarah, being in the tent, this this question uh, to Abraham is almost certainly intended to get her attention from inside the tent. She hears her name called and she realizes, oh, they're talking about me now. I need to, to listen into this. And in verse 10, the Lord says that he is going to return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Now, in verse 11, just to emphasize it one more time, we are told that Abraham and Sarah are old. And it even says that the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, which which roughly translated means that Sarah is post-menopausal at this particular point in time. And not only that, but as she overhears this statement, she says to herself in verse 12, "'After I'm worn out, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure?' And it's challenging to understand the exact meaning of that phrase. It could be um, that she's simply referring to the the joy and the pleasure of having a baby, which just seems to be impossible uh, based on, on where they are at this point in life. Or it could be that this whole idea of Sarah having a baby is impossible, but even if it was possible, which it's not, but even if it was possible, the things that need to happen in order to make that possible aren't happening anymore. And so it's like double impossible. So either way, when Sarah hears that she's going to have a baby, she laughs to herself. She laughs. This is, this is a ridiculous statement. 
Now, something that I find interesting is that it seems that Abraham has not informed Sarah about the conversation that he had with the Lord last week in chapter 17. Uh, There's, uh, again, it's been a little while, but Sarah's reaction here makes it seem like this is the first time she's hearing this. And so, however it's happened, it appears that Abraham has neglected to tell her about the conversation that he had with the Lord in chapter 17 and this little procedure that happened, right? And the significance that all of this has for their offspring. And so you'll also remember that when the Lord told Abraham this last week, Abraham laughed. But there seems to be something different about the way that Sarah laughs. There's, there's some sort of, of sinful hard-heartedness behind it. Because in verse 13, the Lord asks Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Something about Sarah's reaction brings a correction. And then in verse 14, we see the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? And this is a rhetorical question, so of course the answer is no. There is nothing that is too hard for the Lord. And so there's no reason to ever question his word. And then the Lord reiterates that he will return at the appointed time about, uh, in about a year, and Sarah will have a son. And if you remember, ironically, we saw last week that this son will be named Isaac, which means laughter. Now in verse 15, when Sarah realizes that this visitor knows that she laughed, she tries to deny it. Some translations even say that she lied because she was afraid. And so it probably caught her off guard to hear this visitor call her out. You know, she, she laughed to herself, so it wasn't audible. She had no reason to expect that anybody would know what she had done. And, and so in the heat of the moment, her reflex response is to try to diffuse the awkwardness by denying, oh, oh no, I didn't, I didn't laugh. But the Lord, of course, knows what happened. And so, she sa- so he says, no, but you did laugh. And I think, again, this is a demonstration of supernatural knowledge that serves to to underscore the reliability of what the Lord has said. The one who knows the thoughts and the intentions and the laughs of people's hearts is the same one who can do anything, including enabling an elderly woman to give birth. So, in other words, this last statement would serve to rebuke Sarah for her unbelief, and call her to embrace the Lord's promise by faith at the same time. And, and uh, if you remember from Hebrews 11.11, 11, uh, during our Advent series, we read that Sarah did, in fact, uh, believe the Lord's word. And so, even though it isn't stated clearly here in the passage, we know that this was ultimately a redemptive moment for Sarah in the end, as she embraced the Lord's promise by faith. And so in our passage this morning, the Lord appears to Abraham again and confirms his promise that that Sarah will have a son despite the naturally impossible nature of their situation. And he meets Sarah's doubt with an assertion of his omnipotence. And and the point of the passage is, is found in that question in verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? If, if, there, if there are some things that are too hard for the Lord, then, then we would have reason to question whether or not he can really do what he says he will do. But if there's not anything that is too hard for the Lord, 
then the proper response is always for us to believe his word and, and respond in obedience, to trust and obey. And of course, the immediate application of this truth has to do with the birth of a baby. And that raises the question, why is all of this happening in the first place? Like, like why can't Abraham and Sarah just have a kid like everybody else does? And the covenant go through Isaac like the Lord has said. And as we zoom out and look at the big picture, I think there's one answer with two parts. So for one, part of the curse that we experience because of sin that we saw back in Genesis chapter 3 is that women will experience pain in childbirth. As we saw back in chapter 3, that isn't just limited to the fact that the the physical act of labor is painful. It, It has to do with the entire process of childbearing, including having difficulty in conception. And so what the Lord is doing for Sarah is engaging with that part of the curse. He's providing her with a child out of her experience of the curse. And the only way that we would be able to see that is if it happens beyond her natural ability to to have a child. But even more than that, this baby is the child of God's covenant with Abraham which means that Isaac is going to continue the the line of the seed of the woman that we've been tracking ever since Genesis chapter 3. And this leads to the second part. You see, God's people are depending on the birth of a child that is humanly impossible. And I think that is because it ultimately points forward to, to another and greater humanly impossible birth that we are dependent on. You see, thousands of years later, another divine messenger would appear to a different young lady named Mary. And, and as he explained uh, the fact that, uh, that though she is a, a virgin and absolutely incapable of having a child, even more so than Sarah, uh, nevertheless, he, he tells her that God is going to bring the Messiah into the world through her. And he alludes to this very story when he tells her for nothing will be impossible with God. And instead of laughing at this ludicrous statement like Sarah does, Mary responds in faith and says, let it be done to your servant according to your word. And and just like Isaac receives his name from the Lord, so the angel announces that this baby will be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus gets his name from his mission to save us from our sin by dying on the cross as a sacrifice in our place so that we can be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to God by trusting in what he has done for us. And so the, the very beginning of God's covenant people is dependent and is coming about through a miraculous birth And the consummation of God's covenant people is going to come about from a miraculous birth. And I think that is the connection that we should be making here. And then beyond that, obviously this truth applies to our own lives as well. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. There is no provision that God can't make. There is no circumstance that he can't intervene in. There is no door that he can't open. There is no goal he can't accomplish, and we know that he loves us because of what he has done for us through Jesus. And Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 8. And this conviction should do two things for us in life. It should give us hope, and it should give us peace. And so first of all, this, this conviction should always give us 
hope. We talked briefly last week about the fact that that God is not in a hurry. He takes his time. And, And sometimes that tests our patience because we're ready for him to act yesterday or or even sooner than yesterday, right? And so uh, the the fact that nothing is too hard for God should give us hope because we understand that nothing we face is beyond God's ability to provide for us. Nothing is beyond the Lord's ability to do. He can do and will do everything that he has promised to do. But then on the flip side, we should also always have peace. And that's because while nothing is too hard for the Lord, sometimes He doesn't use his power in the way that we would want him to. Sometimes he chooses not to give us that blessing, not to change our circumstance, not to keep us from that difficulty. And our natural reaction in those circumstances is often to question whether we've done something wrong or whether God has abandoned us in, in some way. But the conviction that nothing is too hard for the Lord and that he loves us should give us peace. Because if that is true, and yet we are struggling in some way, it can only mean that God has a purpose for where we are. Charles Spurgeon wisely stated, Remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. And that's true. Now, knowing that may not necessarily make the path that we have to walk any easier, It may not take away any of the pain that we are experiencing, but it it should and does give us an anchor for our soul in the midst of the trials of this life. No matter where we are, and no matter what is going on around us, nothing is too hard for the Lord. And we know that he loves us because of Jesus, so he will accomplish his good purposes in and through us. In, In reading This week, I couldn't help but think of Jeremiah 32, one of the first verses that I memorized as as an adult. In the context, the Babylonian army has surrounded Jerusalem and is preparing for total destruction. And and Jeremiah has been locked in the inner court of the king's palace. And of course, Jeremiah has known that this was coming for some time. He's been warning the people about it and, and trying to call them to repentance. And yet, as the time has come, and reality begins to sink in, he, he, he is completely overwhelmed, and he prays to God and says, Lord, this is going to be absolutely devastating. I, I don't know how we will possibly ever be able to recover from this. If this is going to happen, then how will your promises ever be fulfilled? And, and the Lord responds to him in verse 29, and asks a very familiar question. He says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? No doubt, it's going to be a rough ride for a while. There's going to be a lot of pain and suffering. But in the midst of what will appear to be impossible circumstances, the Lord will accomplish his purposes and redeem his people, which as we've just talked about, he does through Jesus. Church, our God is the God of the impossible. And so there's always reason for us to have hope and to have peace. And so this morning, let's trust and obey the one who will always accomplish his purposes for his people, because nothing is too hard for the Lord, and he loves us. Let's pray. Father, as always, we are grateful for your word. 
And as we continue to follow this story of the promised child that is to be born in the midst of impossible circumstances, Father, we're thankful for the fact that nothing is too hard for you. Lord, we certainly come into seasons of life and circumstances where where we are confused, we are hurting. But Father, we thank you for the fact that, that we can know that you are at work in our lives, that we can always have hope and peace. A hope and peace that causes us to stand out in this world that does not have hope and peace. So Father, as you work that into our hearts, we pray that that you would use us to point this world to to the hope and the peace that can only be found through Jesus. And as we take time to respond now this morning, we pray that you would work this word into our minds and in our hearts, and that you would use it to conform us into the image of Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.